Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. and business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're also giving back to the community, and so can you. Welcome to Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking to make the most of yourself and your business, then you will want to stay tuned for the next hour. Here's your host, Chris Cooper. Firstly, I'd like to say a big thank you to my guest, uh, Will Travers, uh, OBE, um, the president of Born Free, who joined me a couple of weeks ago for a fascinating show. And I really enjoyed understanding more about leading a charity and some of the key issues that we should all be concerned about when it comes to conservation. Um, Also to Derek Arden, whose show I repeated last week on negotiation, a firm favorite for many people who found it a really helpful summary of the key aspects of negotiating well. So today's show, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Lefevre about dealing with addiction. Um, But before I do that, um, I'd just uh, like to mention that my youngest son, Daniel, started school this week at the age of four, and he's full of life and charm, and I'm I'm kind of wondering what future uh, he will create for himself. And it was also my 10th wedding anniversary this week, and that made me feel uh, very lucky. Um, Ruth has been a tremendous wife and shown me lots of uh, love and support. It's also reminded me that uh, my addiction for sometimes overcommitting on the work front um, I need to keep that in, in tow sometimes so that life always remains in balance, which I think the, brings me nicely to today's show uh, with uh, Dr. Robert Lefevre about addiction. So why on this show are we talking about dealing with addiction? Well, I'm really mindful as we go through life that we all come into touch with addiction in some form, whether that's self-addiction or dealing with the addictions of others. And the consequences can be just huge. And I was therefore absolutely fascinated when I met a really uh, nice gentleman at uh, an event that I was, I was hosting. And um, he introduced himself. and His name was Dr. Robert Lefevre. And I realized that he had an enormous amount of wisdom and experience to share on this really important subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, employers, relatives, friends, public service and health professionals all feel or deal with the consequences of addiction, not just the individual. Um, To tell you a little about Robert, um, Robert Lefevre graduated from Cambridge University and as a family doctor created the first rehab in the world to to treat addictive behavior. And non-medicinally, the underlying anxiety and depression that sits behind it. With 120 staff, he, cr- he treated over 5,000 inpatients, and his inspiration being that he'd had to deal with his own addictive behavior. 
Now, today he works on his own as a counsellor and encourages individuals and companies to look at the consequences of their behaviour and gain insight into the causes within themselves. He's lectured and run seminars all over the world, especially in the United States. He's written 23 books on various um, aspects of addictive and compulsive behaviour, and he's a regular speaker, a broadcaster on radio and television. So I'm delighted to introduce you today to a world expert in behavioural change, Dr. Robert Lefevre. Hi, Robert. Hi, Chris. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, can I just make the point that I wasn't the first rehab in the world. Hazleton in Center City, Minnesota was that. Mine was the first to treat all addictive behavior, alcohol, drugs, food, nicotine, gambling, sex and love addiction, um, you know, shopping and spending, and work and exercise, you know, right across the board. And as I said, non-medicinally, the anxiety and depression that underlies that. So that's what I initiated, and I lectured in the USA at CCAD in Atlanta, Georgia, in 1986. So that's how long I've been going to the USA, um, sharing ideas, learning a great deal from professional colleagues there, and hopefully giving a little bit back. Wow, wow. So, so a huge, broad range there of uh, different aspects of addiction. Um, well, I've got most of them myself, so that's, a, that's an advantage. <laughs> So, so do, you, well, do you want to tell us then about about your background, Robert, and you know what inspired you then to help people with addiction? Which now I'll tell you what it is. It, it, the most extraordinary thing about being an addict is that we don't believe it ourselves. I was um, sitting in front of my um, desk, and a, a patient said, "Would you tell me if these uh, drugs are mood altering?" And I said, "What does mood altering mean?" And she said, well, I'm, I'm a recovering heroin addict. And I said, you can't be. I know your father. And she said, well, um, I am. And I go regularly to Narcotics Anonymous. And I said, what on earth is that? I mean, do you hold hands under Waterloo Bridge? And she said, very funny. Have you ever been to a meeting? And I said, well, no. And she said, well, how come you've got opinions like that and you've never been to a meeting? And so I said, okay, you got me there. Take me to a meeting. And so I went to my first meeting of Narcotics Anonymous and the first people I bumped into were three patients of mine. Well, I'm a family doctor, and so surely I ought to know about their addiction. I said, tell me, how come you didn't tell me about this? And they said, oh, Robert, you're a doctor. We can't tell you. And I realized that people were not telling me the most important information, and then I, I vowed to become the sort of doctor that people would tell. But I still had no idea of my own addiction, uh, but I thought I'd, I'd learn a bit more about it. And so I went to Hazelden in Center City, Minnesota. And they teach you as a professional in residence by opening the door, they push you in, and then they close the door. And so there I was with the patients. I was with a Chicago cop, a New York stockbroker, an insurance broker from Maine. He was a wild one. Um, a Kentucky horse thief, a Mexican drug runner. I mean, you name it, I was in with people with whom I had nothing in common socially. But I felt totally at home. These are my people. And I've never lost that feeling. And so I came back to the UK and I thought, well, I really ought to sort of go to something, um, but I couldn't think what to go to. And so then I was at the CCAD conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and a lady called Shirley said, hi, Robert, we'd like to come to a meeting. And, uh, and she offered me the stump of her arm. And being English, I have to know what the etiquette is. I didn't know, do you shake the stump or do you offer the other hand or, or what do you do? And I said, what meeting? She said, Overeaters Anonymous. 
uh, forgive my American accent, I don't do it well, but she did it brilliantly. And I said, well, okay. And so I went to this meeting of Overeaters Anonymous, and they were very nice people. And Shirley said to me, does it mean anything to you, Robert? And I said, well, no, should it? And she said, I don't know. Anyway, it didn't mean anything to me. The next day in the Radisson Hotel in Atlanta, Georgia, I was getting through my third plate of corned beef hash. Now, you know what the sizes of corned beef hash in the USA. And I thought, oops, I wonder if Shirley had a point. And so from that moment onwards, I recognized that I have an eating disorder and I have to do something about it. And so that was how it began. I didn't see my gambling. I lost... Um, you know, three months income on the turn of one card in a poker game, but that's just luck, isn't it? It's just lady luck playing against me. Luck be a lady tonight. And it's just not my day. I didn't see the fact that um, I was smoking 30 cigarettes a day while I was looking after patients on the heart ward in the hospital in which I was trained. Um, I didn't see that my compulsive helping, doing too much for myself and not enough for other people, was actually destroying me, causing terrible damage. So I had a whole nest of addictive behavior, and I just didn't see it. And that is the characteristic of addiction. We don't see it for ourselves. We have to listen to other people, and we're not good at doing that. So, so you know, this this addictive behaviour is it something? Do you think that we're you know, people are inherently born with, or is it um, is it a result of of consequences? I, I think there are three causes. The antecedent cause, I believe, is genetic. That's the the, the cause we're born with that underlies everything else. Addiction runs through my family. Uh, my mother's mother died of alcoholism. My father's father died of alcoholism. My mother was spherical. You could roll my mum. She was five foot naught and, and 15 stone. You know, she a very heavy lady. You, as I say, you could roll her down the road. I've got all sorts of addictions, and, and as I've mentioned, and my elder son, who now runs the rehab that I initially created, um, he had addiction problems as well. And I've got his elder son sitting behind beside me right now and I'm looking at him quizzically to wonder whether he's nodding and he's not nodding yet but you know we'll keep an eye on him in other words it runs through the family in different ways we don't all necessarily have the same addiction and the ones that hide are the prescription drug addiction that's addiction to antidepressants tranquilizers sleeping tablets you, you, you've got to look hard to pick them up um, eating disorders sometimes with people who are bulimic they don't change their weight uh, they're just vomit, uh, binging, vomiting, starving, purging, doing all sorts of behavioral things like that that keep their body weight the same. And we don't see the compulsive helping very easily and sometimes other behavioral addictions. We, we praise people for being workaholics. We praise them for being exercise addicts. But you, you diagnose it on damage. That's the crucial issue. We get damage, increasing damage, continuing damage. And other people don't see it. Um, quite as well as they might because society accepts it. But we have to recognize that these addictions are hidden and when we look for them, we certainly see them. Wow, so you, you, so you really have a, a background in all of this. And um, so, th so that, I guess, was the inspiration to help you, was it? You know, this yes. yes, it was. And the second cause is the contributory cause, which is emotional trauma. And we get something that happens to us. It could be physical, but it would have the emotional effect. And that wakes up the need for mood alteration. Um, something happens. You know, I was put into boarding school at the age of four, which was perfectly reasonable because my parents were in India and there was a war going on and my mother ran a hostel for soldiers on leave. And she thought it would be safer for me to be in the convent on the other side of the road than sharing my home with 30 drunken soldiers. I think she was right. 
But it was rather odd looking across the road to my mother's home, and there I was with the nuns. And so the trauma was there, and it woke up the need for, for mood alteration. And of course, at the age of four, you don't discover alcohol or nicotine or, or uh, cannabis or whatever. You discover sugar. And so I hit the sugar. I can remember falling off a punt when I was aged about six, and I fell into the water sucking a lollipop, and I came up sucking a lollipop. I was little match if I drowned, but I was not going to lose the lollipop. So that was the contributory cause. And then there's the exposure. I have never used cocaine. I'm a fully paid up addict, but I've never used cocaine in my life. Why not? Well, I'm afraid the answer is I'm too old. It simply wasn't around in my day. Um, I talked to my son and, and uh, you know, he said, well, Dad, you really missed out on my experience. And I, still, I said, well, I, thank you very much. I, I, I don't really feel like having any now. I've had enough damage in my life. So those are the three things. The antecedent is the, the genetics. The contributory is the emotional trauma. And the exposure is the, the precipitant cause. And so, therefore, treatment has to be in the other direction. For exposure, the only treatment is abstinence. You can't treat an alcoholic to, to uh, teach him how to be abstinent some days of the week or to cut down or whatever. No, we've got to be totally abstinent. The trauma, and what I do in, in my work is to treat people with EMDR or NLP or psychodrama, in emotional things like that, which get through to the heart of, of, of their feelings. Whereas cognitive behavioral therapy, in my experience, tends to get through to their minds. Well, there's very often nothing wrong with the way that they're thinking and, and, and acting in their professional work but a lot wrong in their feelings, as there was with me. And then finally, for the a genetic predisposition, it's like learning how to live with diabetes. You, 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 it's not an acute illness like appendicitis. You just give it up and throw it away and on you go. It's a chronic illness like diabetes, and you have to learn how to live with it. And what I recommend patients to do is to go to the appropriate anonymous fellowships, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, and so on. And that way, by working the 12-step program on a day-to-day -day basis, they learn how to be an addict but not do addictive things. Mm. I, I haven't used any addictive substance for just coming up to 30 years. I don't have any alcohol, recreational drugs, prescription drugs, nicotine, caffeine, sugar, white flour. I don't have any of that. I'm just totally absent from all of that. And my life is wonderful. Now, it hasn't always been wonderful. Um, five years ago, as a result of a massive fraud by my accountant, which I, I just didn't see and I should have done, so that was part of my compulsive helping not to see it, I was made bankrupt. And then three weeks after I came out of bankruptcy, my wife died of a stroke. That was not a good time. But I did not relapse. I didn't go back into alcohol or drugs or food or nicotine or anything because I already knew that it wouldn't help me. It would only make me worse. And I was able, therefore, to do the things that worked. You know, working the 12-step program is magical. Uh, the last meeting I went to was this morning. Um, I, I found the meetings incredibly helpful, helping me to be the person I want to be. Now, this evening, my, my grandson and I are going out to a promenade concert. We're going to hear the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra in the Royal Albert Hall playing some Rachmaninoff piano concerto and, and some Stravinsky. Now, if that isn't living, I don't know what is. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, so you know, you, you've used, um, you, you continue to uh, follow this 12-step process yourself, uh, and that's what's kept you on the straighter now for 30 years. Yes, yeah. that's right. Just continuing to do that and being in that environment. 
And the crucial thing is that um, it isn't just that I'm abstinent. You get some people who say, I haven't had a drink for 20 years. And you think, oh, God, why not? Why not, for heaven's sake, live a bit? But when I say I haven't had a drink for 30 years, I'm, I'm saying it just as a matter of fact. You know, I'm short-sighted, I'm allergic to bee stings, and I haven't had a drink for 30 years. It's just, you know, I, t- I take it totally for granted because I work the 12-step program every day of my life. And this way, I can be the person I want to be. I got married again two years ago. Would you believe that? How did that happen? You can't uh, get married to someone who's a, an addict and who's, you know, got all that history behind him. But Pat took me on and I should be so lucky. And so we have a love. And, and I mean, that's, it's fascinating that you, you refer to yourself as, as an addict, even though you've, you've been kind of on the straight and narrow for 30 years. Is it, is it something that never goes away? You just have to control the, the symptoms. To go to commercial break and uh, reconnect after the break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called The Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned in to Be More, Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com. That's info at bemoreachievemore.com. Now, back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Dr. Robert Lefevre. We're talking about addiction. And, well, I just... Um, before the break, you were talking about uh, you moved on in your life to this kind of trauma you'd had. But I'd like to go back just a little bit before we, we get into addiction and, and behavior again um, to just understand a little bit about um, your experiences uh, in you know, going from being a family doctor to growing an organization of 120 people, uh, which is you know, it's quite fascinating. What did you learn about um, creating and leading an organization of that size? 
Well, what I found was that I was running a, a private medical practice. You know, I'd been a, a, a family doctor the whole of my professional life. I did 45 years of that, and I did something over a quarter of a million consultations. So I knew how to run a business, uh, but it was a, a relatively small business. Once I started running a rehab, it built up, as you say, to 120 people, and we had, over a period of 23 years, I had over 5,000 fully private inpatients. So we had a turnover of some six million pounds sterling every year. And that's a, a lot of money, it's a lot of staff, it's a lot of responsibility, and immensely rewarding, a, a lot of fun. So what I learned was um, how to really train staff to know what they were looking for, uh, to look for the family side as well as for the primary addicts, to get proper research studies done, uh, seeing what is the outcome? Do my beliefs actually hold up in practice? To help the staff to recognize their own frailty of how difficult it is to do work where people don't want what you're selling. Um, you know, in other people's business, you, you sell them a widget and they beat a path to your door. If it's a good widget, they'll buy it. But in mine, I'm trying to sell them abstinence. If I was trying to sell them alcohol, drugs, they'd, they'd, they'd love it. But I'm trying to tell them how to stay off. And they don't want that. They want to stay using. They want to find a way of using sensibly. So there were a lot of marketing things that I needed to, to learn about how to put across an idea in such a way that people are likely to listen rather than just give them the facts because they don't want that. So there are lots of things there as far as business is concerned. And what I would say to businesses now is absolutely vital. Addiction effects are probably one in six people one in six. Now, have a look at the size of your company. One in six of those will have addiction problems, and they will destroy your company. They will cheat. They will lie. They will steal. They will you know, find ways of getting around and not doing the work that they're asked to do and so on. And they may be on the board. They may be the chief executive. You, know. they, you, you cannot trust an addict. A, a using addict will destroy you. And so we really need to help people to understand that addiction is an illness, that can affect anybody. And, you know, I've treated people who, who have been chief executives. I've treated doctors. I've treated psychiatrists. I've treated members of both houses of uh, parliament, the House of Commons and the House of Lords. I've had addicts from all over the place. And I've had housewives and, and you know, uh, maids in, in hotels and so on, and the milkmen. I've had all sorts of people. Addiction is no respecter of persons. So if you're running a company... One in six of the people you're looking after in your company have got addiction problems and they'll bring you down um, if you don't find out who they are and really help them to get well. There's no point in just getting rid of them because you'll recruit some more. And then that's really, I mean, that's really interesting. One, one in six, that seems, that seems um, really quite high. So I think maybe what would be interesting is to look at how you define addiction. Um, yes, I, there are some specific characteristics. Um, I'll, I'll take you through them if you wish. Yeah, please do. Um, first of all, preoccupation. We've got it on our mind all the time, either to give it up or to use a bit more or whatever. Second, contentment with use alone. You don't necessarily have to use in company. You're perfectly happy on your own. Third, use primarily for mood-altering effect. I don't drink alcohol for the taste. I mean, it's ridiculous. I drink for the, yeah, man, that's hit the spot. Four, um, use as a medicine, you know, you use it as a tranquilizer, a sleeping tablet. Um, oh, Doc, if you could help me to sleep, then that would be wonderful. Then I wouldn't need to drink. 
Um, five, protection of supply. That is, over here is the money for the mortgage and the money for the school fees and the money for the holidays. That's all negotiable. We can talk about that. But over here is the alcohol money, and we're not talking about that. That's ring-fenced. That is my money. Six, the inability to predict what is going to happen after the first use. Um, anybody can go completely dry. That's not a problem. But supposing you tried every day for a week, just at lunchtime, you had two drinks and no more in the rest of the day. That an alcoholic can't do. And the same is true for any other addiction. We can't do it sensibly. Once you stimulate the more button, it says more, 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 more. And so, you know, we have to be abstinent so as not to, to stimulate it at all. But in that state, you may become what's called a dry drunk. I don't drink. Okay. Um, number seven, continuing to use despite damage. You know, the chap who's lost his driving license, he's is, is lost his job, he's lost his wife. He goes back to the bar for comfort because he sees alcohol as his friend, not as an enemy that's caused all the damage. Number eight, um, having a higher capacity than other people. We can drink other people under the table and we think that that means that, that we couldn't possibly be alcoholic. You know, I'm, I've got a very good head. I'm afraid that's a point against you, not in favor. Number nine, and the tendency to cross-addict. We come out of the alcohol and into the sugar, out of the sugar into the nicotine, out of the nicotine into the gambling. We go from one to another. Number ten, the tendency to have drug-seeking behavior. If we're coming up to a holiday period, we make absolutely sure that we've got plenty stashed away just in case for some reason the shops might be closed. And so we, we make sure we've got plenty. And then uh, number 11, uh, drug-dependent behavior. Uh, we, we can't function properly until we've had our shot of nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, whatever it is. And finally, number 12, the inability to listen to other people. They can see the damage we've got, and they are concerned, and they express their damage, and we don't listen to them. Now, the bad news is this. Any four of those 12 characteristics indicates an addictive nature. You're one of us. But I hope that what I'm saying about my own story gives people the courage and the understanding that, you know, um, we can be addicts, but we don't have to do addictive things. And my life as a recovering addict is absolutely wonderful. And I hope that my wife says as well, but I don't take that for granted. I've learned that the statement, I am married, is short by two words, and those two words are so far. So I don't take my wife for granted. I, I need to make sure that I behave myself so that she's happy to see me just as I'm happy to see her. Very, very good point, more put. Um, so what should you do in a situation when you know, someone is demonstrating these, these characteristics? You have to give people the consequences of their behavior. When my wife Meg was sitting in front of the divorce lawyer, I said, what, what on earth, you know, what's the matter with her? I went round to her GP and I said, what, what's the matter with Meg? And, and he said, Robert, it's not, it's not Meg, it's you. And I just didn't see it. But then I had to listen because you don't want your wife sitting in front of a divorce lawyer. I certainly didn't. And so she confronted me and that's what ultimately got me into recovery. People told me the truth about myself and I had to listen. You know, in my using days as a compulsive gambler, and, uh, you know, I, as I say, I lost three months income on the turn of one card. Would you believe wives don't like that? Mm. Um, it's not what they vote for. Um, you know, and smoking on the heart ward, again, it, it's, it's not good medical practice, but it's absolutely crazy. I, I'm, I'm absolutely nutty as a fruitcake. I'm mad. I'm insane. 
Now, step two of the 12-step program is looking to have God remove my defects of character, my my insanity, to restore me to sanity. Uh, And I'm not insane, but I am. I don't, don't see it, but I'll settle for crazy. Yeah, I'm crazy. And there's part of me that's crazy that is very creative, and I want to keep that part. I don't want to become a bore. I don't want to become, you know, a cabbage. I, I want to be me, but I don't want to be the destructive me. And I've learned how to do that by working the 12-step program. Mm, it's fascinating. It's, you know, it, it, it's fascinating talking with you as well. You, you mentioned it, 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 right way through the strata from you know, the House of Commons and Lords to the to the milkman, it affects anybody. And you know, your your ex sort of you came from Cambridge University, and you you speak very eloquently, um, but you still uh, have an addictive personality. Yes, I think we all have our own personalities, but I would say I have an addictive nature. It's the way I'm made. Um, but my personality, I, I tend to be rather extrovert. I'm a wild one, and I, I want to stay that way. I, I don't see why I should change, because I say some parts of that are very creative. But I have an addictive nature. I just am an addict, and I'm, I'm not ashamed of that. It's just part of me. Um, it's the way I am. But I'm very guilty over some of the things I've done in my life. And part of the 12-step program is to make amends for those, to apologize to the people I've hurt, except when to do so would injure them or or cause more damage to them or other people. I remember one of my medical school contemporaries, I I met him 20 years later at a reunion, and I said, "I, I must apologize to you for the way I behaved towards you when we were medical students together. I was a complete idiot. And he said, yes, you were. And he turned around and walked away. Now, that is his privilege. Mm. He doesn't have to accept my amend. Um, I remember apologizing to a girl that I made a pass at her, and she hadn't remembered. Well, that's pretty humiliating. If a girl doesn't even remember when I made a pass at her, that's not very nice. Uh, But that's the reality of it. So there are lots of things like that. Um, how do you make an event to someone you just don't know where they, where they are nowadays? And my sponsor said to me, imagine he owes you 10 grand, you'll find him. Um, and again, I remember a, a chap telling me that he'd been an enforcer for a drug gang. He used to shoot people. He says, well, how do I go to someone and say, I'm, I'm sorry, I killed your son? And I said, well, people who are in that line of business usually finish up in prison. So what you might do for the rest of your life is to become a counselor and work in prisons because then you'll be putting something back into the system from which you took so much out, from the legal system. And so there are always ways of making an appropriate mend. There are always ways of being the person you want to be rather than going on being the complete idiot that we are in in the process of our addiction. Yeah. I've just suddenly got um, memories of an American TV series called uh, My Name is Earl. I don't know if you've ever seen that one, which was about kind of karma, and going back and trying to resolve all the issues from all the crazy things you've done in the past. Yeah. I haven't seen that. It was quite, a, quite, a, quite amusing. Um, so, so actually, you know, what is interesting about, um, you know, about your life as well is that, you know, that, that addiction and those things that happened, you know, you, you, you've gone on. It's almost been a blessing in disguise because you've helped so many other people since. Well, I've been very, very privileged. I've had one of the most fascinating and rewarding professional lives that I could ever imagine. Um, I I just love the work I do. I'm still working full time and I I just love it. I've been very privileged in that respect. There are a lot of people who who do jobs simply for for the money or for whatever and I understand that. But I've, I've had all the fun, particularly clinically. If you think about it, 
most doctors work with people who start off pretty well and finish up, you know, as a result of their illness progressing, they finish up with wrecks. Well, I start with the wrecks and finish up with people who are pretty well. Mm. I, I had lunch today with a professional musician. He was a member of a rock band in the United States. And at his lowest ebb, he was in nowhere country. He was a, a very sick bunny indeed. But, you know, the lunch we had today with no alcohol was very, very funny. We, we had a lovely time. And he's become a, a real friend. And helping him to get well is tremendous privilege for me. And, you know, if he relapses, which I pray he doesn't, that's just one of these things. Um, people do relapse at times, and, and I have to come to terms with that. Um, I don't take credit for their recovery. I don't take the blame for their relapses. I do my professional work. And some of them do very well, about 65% do well, and about 35% don't. So I'm not claiming miracle cures. I'm saying the credit goes to the patient. They either do the work or they don't. They either work the 12-step program every day of life and get well and be the people they want. Or they hang on to saying, well, it was all due to my childhood. It was all due to bad schooling. It was all due to the abuse and abandonment that I suffered. No, that's not going to get you well. You know, talking about it and, uh, and so on is not very helpful. Reaching out to help somebody else, when A reaches out to help B, A gets better. That's the trick. So when we take our minds off ourselves and reach out to help somebody else, that's how you get better long term. Mm. So I, I say, you know, if people are listening to this who are maybe leaders in organizations and they're now thinking about maybe members of staff who who they uh, suspect may not um, or may have more than four of the criteria that you mentioned earlier, four or more, how do you think they should deal with them in the workplace? Well, I think the first thing to do is to look at your personnel department because they know who the people are who've got addiction problems. They don't see them having addiction problems as such, but they see them having problems with money, they see them having problems with their home life, with their professional life, their secretaries won't work with them, they're always late. Then, You know, right across the board, addiction is the only illness that has consequences right across the board. If you've got cancer, you don't get divorced because of that. Um, you may not be able to work, but you know, you've got all sorts of other things still going on in your life. If you've got heart disease or diabetes, the same is true. You can still function, but you get consequences if you have addiction problems. You get medical consequences, you get social consequences, you get financial consequences, marital consequences, right across the board. And they will all finish up in the personnel department. If you've got a thick personnel file, you can pretty well guarantee that person's got an addiction problem in there, because that's the only way you can get all those consequences. And so they already know the people, but they just don't recognize it as such. But that, that's how to do it. And then the decision is what to do. Let me give you um, an insight into when I was talking to the deputy heads conference. The, the deputy heads of schools are the people who actually run the schools. The headmaster or headmistress has a, has a PR function. They're, they're involved in welfare and so on. But the deputy heads actually run the departments. And I said to them, you can solve your addiction problem in your school overnight because you're not using the main resource that you've got. And they said, huh? I said, well, the resource is the other children. They know who the addicts are, but they're not going to tell you because your policy is that you'll expel them. You'll throw them out of the school. But if you have a policy that any person who's found using drugs or even selling drugs will be compulsorily sent to rehab and then will be taken back into the school and you know, welcomed back as somebody who was ill but is now getting well, 
then the other children will see you as a friend and will say, I'm actually worried about little Johnny because I think he's got a drug problem. And you say, fine, let's find him a rehab, let's, let's look after him and let's get him back. And then the other children will realize that they are being friendly and supportive to their mates. Whereas if you have the policy, you know, we're going to have to deal with this, otherwise people will say we're a druggy school. And the bursar, the, the chap who's running all the money in the school will say, but, but Deputy Ed, we're going to guard a business because we'll have this terrible reputation. You have to overrule that and say, no, this is the way we're going to do it. And we will find out who the people are who do have an addiction problem in the school or in the company or whatever. And then we'll be able to help them and we'll be able to move forward. Now, if we do it that way, it really can work and we really can get to grips with the issue. Uh, was I invited to speak again? No. Was I invited to speak at the headmaster's conference? No. Why not? Because what I say is very difficult to hear. And I respect that and I understand it. I guess with, with that, you also, because the complexity of sending a child to, to rehab must need to involve social services and maybe yep. maybe parents. And if, and if they've got addictive personalities to the child, it may be that the parents have. So it's probably yep. quite a involved process it's it's a can of worms mm. and it gets progressively more expensive and progressively more damaging but this is the issue these people are an immense burden um, on health services anyway uh, um, one in five of all people in hospital have alcohol related conditions one in ten of all post-mortem show significant liver damage from alcohol the police will tell you that 85% of episodes of domestic violence are alcohol-related. Uh, in the accident and emergency departments, in the evenings and weekends, 50% of the people there are there as a result of use of either alcohol or drugs. These are enormous figures. And what I'm showing is how we can actually help people to get well. well we're going to go to commercial break in a minute. In a minute. But uh, just before we, we do, I mean, something that came to me is there's this enormous addiction now almost a culture of addiction to food mm -hmm. um and and you know our average weight is we probably don't eat 20 percent more food than we did 10 15 years ago and we're 20 percent heavier on average yeah um you know that's that's something that a lot of people are just not recognizing i think well my own weight used to vary by 50 pounds i now weigh 154 pounds and i previously i was to weigh double that so you know, I know about eating disorders because I've got one, and I know how to deal with it and help people to be happy. Excellent. Well, after the break, we'll look at uh, some of the sort of techniques and approaches that um, Dr. Robert Lefebvre um, recommends and, and uses. So we'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Hi, I'm Rebecca Costa, host of the Costa Report every Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. This week, my guest is outspoken former congressman and one of our country's most prominent gay public figures, Mr. Barney Frank. He'll be with us to talk about the Supreme Court's ruling on DOMA and how the Obama presidency is doing in its second term. Don't miss Barney Frank this Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. on the Voice America Business Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. 
Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading Conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. tuned in to Be More, Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com. That's info at bemoreachievemore.com. Now, back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Dr. Robert Lefevre. We were talking during the break about, um, about, about eating. And actually, when you put into the equation... Robert was talking about one in six people um, having an addicted personality. And when you put in that factor about you know, weight and, uh, and you know, overeating, which is very, very common in today's society, suddenly that one in six doesn't seem such an such a, uh, you know, a, a extreme number. Um, I wonder, Robert, what your view is um, in terms of you know, the process that um, should be adopted to really help people who have these um, addictive uh, challenges. Well, we... We do need to give people the consequences of their behavior. Um, if somebody's overweight, there's no consequence to anybody else by and large. The consequences are just to themselves. If somebody's using drugs, they can damage other people as a result of crime and all sorts of other things. If somebody's using alcohol, they can damage people by driving when they're drunk and, and, and so on. But with eating disorders, it's more difficult because the, the consequences are usually for the person themselves. Now, my weight, as I say, used to vary by 50 pounds up and down and up and down. I was always on a diet, even when I was putting on weight uh, and so on. I had no insight into it. I didn't think I had a problem. It's just that, you know, a bit of a food thing. And it wasn't true. I have an eating disorder full stop, and I needed to be responsible for it. As far as people on my staff are concerned, um, it's very rare for people to have just one addiction. They've probably got other things as well. Uh, the addictive behavior that goes commonly with eating disorders is shopping and spending and work and exercise. Well, if they've got shopping and spending and they run out of money, what are they going to do to your company? If they've got access to the money, they'll take yours. So someone with an eating disorder is, is not the innocent person that you might imagine. You've got a potential thief on your hands. Um, and the work, I, I don't want a workaholic on my, my staff. You think, oh, that'd be wonderful, and they'd work so hard. Yeah, but they never finish anything. They never do it properly. They never do it thoroughly. They're chaotic. You don't want that. So it is very important to be able to uh, confront people who um, 
have any form of addictive behavior so that you can protect yourself but also protect them. Exercise, we think of exercise being healthy. Well, I, I treat exercise addicts, you know, people who really run themselves into the ground. They're getting much fractures and so on. Uh, exercise is not necessarily the healthy thing it's made out to be. It can be very damaging. Mm, because it's getting the, getting the balance right, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, what, um, you, know, you mentioned in terms of sort of techniques that you work with people. You mentioned earlier you use things like NLP. Um, yeah. Something... Yes, I do. I've been involved in the in the in the past and utilize some of the tools occasionally in my toolbox. So, you know, yeah. how how do you use NLP neuro linguistic programming, for example, in well, helping people to I was very very privileged. I was trained in NLP and hypnotherapy by Richard Bandler. And he is an absolute genius. He's he's a wild one. He's mm-hmm. you know, got all sorts of, of strange characteristics. But he's clever. He does know his stuff, and he's he's produced a, a very useful tool. Um, and Paul McKenna, the hypnotherapist, incredibly oh, genius of a man. I remember watching him on Top Gear, uh, teaching the hamster uh, Philip Hammond. <laughs> to, uh, he didn't know what the gear lever was, and so there he was, one of the, the top experts in driving, uh, didn't understand the gear lever because uh, Paul had hypnotized him to to forget what the beer lever was. Um, now, Paul will do that sort of thing. It's a demonstration of what can be done. But he helped a patient of mine who was a doctor who had a needle stick injury and was terrified that she'd got HIV. And she just couldn't work. And he got her back to work. He got her back very healthy. So I've got a lot of time for Paul. We may see him as a stage hypnotherapist. He's a, he's a lot more than that. And Richard Bander, as I say, he's a wild one. But, oof, he's got such skill so NLP I use, um, you know, in their wake, they train me and, and I use techniques that they showed me. Um, psychodrama, I trained partly with Zaka Moreno, the, the wife of, or third wife of J.L. Moreno, who created it. I've been so privileged to learn from her and to help people to look at thoughts, feelings and actions all at the same time. EMDR, I learned through Francine Shapiro's work. And I've modified it so that I use um, sight, sound, touch, and muscular movement all at the same time rather than just eye movement. And this way, I help people to put the past back into the past and not relive it today, 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 today. And so those are the three things that I do most of all. And I find it immensely helpful. I go to the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference in Anaheim, California every four years there are seven to 8,000 delegates, and you learn from all the greats, from Martin Seligman, who created positive psychology, to Bill Glasser, who's a friend of mine who died last year. He created choice theory. I mean, what do these techniques do? Is it about, um, is it about reprogramming people? Or? I mean, well, yes, it is, in a way. Um, addiction is primarily an emotional illness. People imagine it's a thought disorder, and you can sort it out with, with um, cognitive behavioral therapy. You can't. Um, it's an emotional problem. You need an emotional treatment. It's a crazy problem. You need a crazy treatment. And who's ever thought that eye movement desensitizing and reprocessing could help people, but it does. So, so I do a lot of that. Can you help me help me understand that? I'm not. I'm familiar with. Yes, it, it's alternating stimulation of one side of the body and then the other. Um, you can use eye movement or sound or touch or muscular movement. As I say, I use all four. What it does is to keep both sides of the brain active at the same time. With the end result is that the thinking brain can talk to the feeling brain. 
And that's the magic. And when you do um, scans of people having EMDR, you will see that this is true, that both sides of the brain are alight at the same time, the right side and the left, the thinking and the feeling. And so things that previously just didn't get through do, as a result of EMDR, get through because the thinking brain is um, getting through to the feeling brain. When I had um, EMDR myself after my wife died, it was tremendously helpful. I thought that I was responsible for her death. I mean, she died of a stroke, and you can't cause a stroke. But I nonetheless felt responsible. And the EMDR didn't take away the sadness. We've been together 51 years, so it's not surprising that I felt sad. It's totally appropriate, and I didn't want to change that. But what I did want to change was the sense of personal uh, crucifying that I, I did to myself. And, and that's gone. I didn't cause her death. I'm still sad that she's gone and sad for her and, and sad for me. But I've moved on. And that's what EMDR enables people to do. Psychodrama, I find immensely helpful. Helping people to reenact and future project uh, different emotional challenges in their lives so they learn how to deal with them. And again, I found that tremendously helpful. I, I love that most of all. That's the thing I, I do most of all. Uh, helping people to, to move on from difficult traumas. And that I, I feel immensely privileged being able to help them in that way. And people remember it. They will say, oh, Robert, you remember that psychodrama you did with me 15 years ago? <laughs> and I, I do, what, uh, five or six little psychodramas in an hour. And I do 12 therapeutic sessions a week. So I've got rather a lot of psychodrama experience. And I can't remember every single little one. But they do. And that's what matters. They find it so personal for them, it helps them to get well and see things in a new light. I should be so lucky to do this work. <laughs> and and is, that, is, that, um, is that them, you know, changing the way they're articulating the story or something? Or is it, is it something that you... you're? No, I, think, I think it's actually changing the way we perceive. Addiction is a perception deficit. This is not my hand, it's not in front of my face. I just don't see it. And what therapy of one kind or another does is to help people to actually see, yes, it is my hand, it is in front of my face, and I'm responsible for it. Mm. And I can do something about it. Um, recovery is really a message of hope. Um, when in fellowship meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever, people are asked to share their experience, strength, and hope, people will often talk about their experience. And they go on and on and on, or what's called a drunkalogue. That doesn't help them. It doesn't help the audience. What is helpful is the, the strength and the hope. My wife died. I did not relapse. I was made bankrupt. I did not relapse. I'm having a wonderful life. I have no intention of relapsing because I do the necessary things that prevent me from relapsing. Going to meetings, working the steps, reading the literature, getting a sponsor, staying abstinent. I'm not likely to relapse on that, but I could. And therefore, I spent half an hour this morning with my sponsor, a chap who helps me. I have a supervisor. He's a consultant psychiatrist. I mean, he just happens to be a consultant psychiatrist. I have a mentor, another person working in the same field. I have three people who look after me because I ask them to and I listen to them. And that way, hopefully, I can carry on doing this work for another 23 years, which is my hope. Uh, so fantastic. And I guess uh, a little bit like uh, uh, you know, I, do, I do business mentoring and I hold people accountable for progress. And having when you've got other people who are holding you accountable, 
guess those three people are holding you accountable and supporting you. It's mm. not just about yourself then, is it? No, that's right. We need a higher power than self. Now, a higher power can be an electrician, an accountant, a doctor. In my case, I don't have a religious belief, but I do have a very strong spiritual belief. I believe that my wife, Meg, is still very much alive. Just, she just doesn't have a body at the moment. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a bit inconvenient for her. But she is still very much there. And I have a spiritual belief. And that, I think, is what helps me to, to move forward, just to feel that um, life is for living. And if I can be some relevance in other people's lives, what a wonderful thing to be able to do. I should be so lucky. Fantastic. So what, what, are the, what are the top tips that you've learned then in your life that you would like to share with others? Number one, I don't see myself very well. I don't know if you can hear that police siren going, <laughs> I think they're coming to collect me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they may be, I may have gone too far. So number one, I don't see myself very well. Ask somebody else, get someone else to, to give me feedback, honest feedback. My friends are not people who say, oh, Robert, you're wonderful. Those are not my friends. My friends say, Robert, I think you got that wrong. You know, those are my friends. I learn from them. So that, I think, is the most important. Um, the second thing is look for the consequences of behavior. Don't try to give explanations as to where it all came from. That's psychobabble, and we could do without that. Look for the consequences. If people are getting damaged right across the board. That person's got an addiction problem. You're going to have to help them. Next, don't recognize that other people have got addictions and you haven't. Any one of us can have an addiction problem. One in six people have addiction problems. Uh, don't say, oh, it never happens in my family, never happens in my company, never happens in my environment. Oh, yes, it does. You just don't see it. So those are my top three. Robert, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I found the conversation absolutely fascinating. So thank you. And it's my privilege. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're very welcome. And if you want to find out more about, uh, about Robert, go to www.doctor. Uh, hyphen robert.com that's www.dr-robert.com and um, related to uh, I guess to some respects to this week's show we're going to look at um, about uh, a book uh, called Younger Next Year next uh, week with a fascinating individual called Chris Crowley who at 80 cycles 100 miles at a time and rose 25 miles at a time and he's the author of one of my favorite books um, Younger Next Year which sold over one and a half million copies and he's also written a book recently called uh, Thinner This Year so we're really looking at um, health um, at the moment um, because it's something that impacts us all whatever we do so once again a big thank you to uh, Dr. Robert Lefevre and I wish you all a tremendous week. for listening to be more achieve more please join your host chris cooper again next friday at 8 a.m u.s pacific time typically 4 p.m london on the voice america business channel enjoy your week